Welcome to both Success and Integrity with Bessie Graham, a podcast dedicated to established business leaders like you, ready to bring more meaning into your life in a way that strengthens rather than threatens the financial stability of your business. I'm your host, Bessie Graham. I've worked with business owners, governments, and large funding bodies like the United Nations for over 20 years to bring doing good and making money back together. So let's unpack why you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest because he is someone who's very special to me. Isaac was the first person that I hired when I was running the Difference Incubator, TDI, back in the day. I think he may have been 21 at the time. But in today's episode, we are talking about business models And the tool which Isaac and I have been using for many, many years, the business model canvas. It was actually Isaac's business modeling skills and ability that made me want to hire him all those years ago. So I'm thrilled to have him with us today as we dig into this together. In so many of the conversations that I'm having with business leaders, it comes back to talking about business models and the ways that we can think differently about how to run our businesses as we seek to bring to life this win-win that we're designing that helps us with that feeling of having more of a sense of meaning and contribution through our business, but does that without undermining the financial stability. So when I have these conversations, I always end up needing to explain the business model canvas. So I'm hoping that our conversation today inspires you to follow a few of the links that we're sharing in the show notes and just to learn more about the wonderful tool that Strategizer created called the business model canvas, which really can change the way you design and redesign your business model moving forward. So Isaac Jeffries, Hello. we've both, both aged a bit since, you know, when we first met each other. But we're both it's wearing our hair. Yeah, true. Got long hair. I have here, Isaac, two gifts that you gave me once upon a time <laughs> that are still in my office, Bessie Nutella and Bessie M&M's, or TDI M&M's more like it. But um, I, when I thought about this topic, and was like, okay, we need to do a podcast and dig in a bit more to business models. You, of course, were the human I thought of huh. because way back when um, you were the first person that we hired to come and work with us at TDI. And the piece that I would say, I would probably go so far as to claim that I spotted your business model <laughs> brilliance before you did. <laughs> But you have always just had this natural blink ability to 
see and think in business models that I haven't met many people that can. And so what I'm wondering if you can help us with today is to, we'll dig in with a few questions, but I'm also keen for you to really start us off by assume someone doesn't even know how to use the business model canvas yet. And it's not something that they've lived and breathed for 13 years or however long you and I have been using it. And I want to set the frame for you first, though, Isaac. We are looking at the business model and running a business with this perspective of talking to people who are already running an established business. So the business is running well. And really the the core message that I'm trying to get across is that you can do good and make money. And in fact, doing good is the competitive edge that your business has been missing. So for people who are running a business and have previously kind of seen doing good as being something external to their business, the way I want you to think about in talking to us about the business model canvas is what does it look like to create that beautiful win-win and use the business model canvas to think about doing good inside a business? Great. Okay. So it's a bit of a tweak on how you and I used to back in the day use it, bringing, trying to teach people how to think commercially about a social environmental angle. So that's kind of the, the hat I need you to wear for us today. But are you happy to sort of jump straight in and, and talk a little bit about the canvas as a tool to think about those important parts of a business first up? So teach us a bit about that and then we'll jump into the win-win. Definitely. That sounds really good. For me, the three words that helped me understand what a business model was, the three words are from IDEO and the three words are called desirability, feasibility and viability. Now, a business model canvas has got nine boxes Nine is a lot of new things to learn at once, and three is much easier. And those three words, desirable, feasible, viable, these are the things that every business owner in the world can agree they need a sustainable way of doing those things day in, day out, week in, week out, so that they have a system that works so they can go on a holiday. You want you want a replicable way of finding and delighting your customers. You want a way of running the business smoothly and predictably and you want a way of making more money than you spend and whether or not you want to call that a profit or a surplus that's up to you but money for a rainy day has proved to be universally popular especially over the last few years the canvas is really an extrapolation of those three ideas so it's a way of of starting with first and foremost who is going to be our customer and a customer might be the person who is who benefits from your business maybe not i'm not sure but the customer is the people who are spending money with you. We want to understand who are these people? Where are they Where are they today? They're not made up. They're walking around somewhere and they, they probably haven't heard of your brand. And so we want to start to look at what's going to be their first interaction with your business. What's going to be their first impression that they get from you? And then once they understand what you're about, the big question is, what's in it for me? What's What's the reason to try something new? What's the reason to switch from what I'm doing today? What's the reason to spend some money and what's the reason to try something that might or might not work? And so with our business model canvas, that's the best place to start is going to be looking at who our customers are going to be and then what's the what's the incentive or what's the value proposition for why someone's going to be better off if they start shopping with you. And I think those pieces, so if we look at the good old um, desirability, feasibility, viability, they are very helpful uh, overarching framings to give to a business owner at the start of this conversation because you're right so often, particularly when we're making that mindset shift and saying, 
oh, my business could actually be an agent for change. I could stop thinking about this as the donation of a percentage of profit and I could instead look at the decisions I'm making inside the business. The first natural point of pushback if you're already running a business and it's doing well is, oh, my gosh, is this going to undermine the financial stability of my business? Is this going to be a distraction? You know, these are lots of the the questions that I get from people around, well, how much time is this going to take? What is this going to look like? So if you think of those kind of fears, if you like, that are raised for a business owner who's doing this, are there ways that you have found to enter into and use the business model canvas that actually do the opposite and create a way to see opportunities or create win-wins that weren't there if you didn't know how to use this tool? One of the the best sort of mental frameworks I've encountered for thinking about your marketing and customer acquisition is the three words are called know, like, and trust. Know is K-N-O-W. no one is going to shop with you unless they know who you are, they like what you can do, and they they trust that your promises are legitimate. And with the impact of your business, it is one of the best ways to A, get people to hear about what you're doing because it gives you so much content to talk about, you know, here's why the organization exists, here's who we serve, here's why people are better off because of it. But it's also a really way to become better liked and better trusted. So it becomes a real advantage in your marketing to not just say, we do the same thing as our competitors doing, but to actually say, here's why we live and breathe what we think is important in this work. And it's, it's, it becomes a really, really good source of your marketing material to be able to show people, here's why we're likable and here's why we're trustworthy. It gives I that understand. kind of stickiness with a customer, doesn't it? Where it's like, as you said, it's not just you're competing on price or look the same as everyone else, but you draw to you people who care about what you care about. Very, very much so. Simon Sinek talks about this quite a lot, and I think his work is really interesting. Um, I don't think a social, a good social mission can't make up for a, a low-quality product or a bad experience. Um, you see it a lot with, with cafes who have a social mission behind it, is that that story is what gets people in the door. And the quality of the coffee or the quality of the experience, that's what determines if someone's going to come back. But if you're if you're looking for some sort of point of difference, to be able to talk about here's what this business is able to do for the world, people and planet, it's a huge advantage. Yeah, that whole piece of recurring revenue, people actually renewing and coming back with you, people referring to you, all those R's, are a good um, piece to keep in mind when you sort of think about it in that way. I, I wonder, I don't know if you remember, way back when we first started running business model workshops, we were often working with people and trying to help them understand that their personal drivers, their intent or mission may not always be the same as the value proposition to a customer, right? So we would have to teach them to like, okay, when are we talking about what you care about? When are we talking about what the customer cares about? Have you seen a shift in the last few years around how important that piece of your own drivers and organisational values and pieces being um, central in that way you just spoke about from a marketing point of view, from a people wanting to buy from and be associated with brands that care about what they care about. Are you seeing the mission purpose piece or intent, whatever word people want to use, becoming more and more connected to a value proposition or is that still something that's important to keep separate? I think 
my favorite entrepreneurs I work with are really good at holding both of those things simultaneously. So they're, they're really quite driven by something personal and they don't always bring that up in terms of their, their marketing message with their customers. Um, but what it does is that personal mission is a really sustainable source of fuel and energy for delivering a really, really great experience or a really remarkable product to the customer. Uh, it, it can be quite tiring trying to constantly test and experiment and um, iterate on what your business actually does. And so what we often see is the entrepreneurs who are driven by something really personal, you know, both what they talk about publicly and even what they don't, that's what's going to continue to inspire them to to keep refining that value proposition and to keep changing and improving what they do to boost their sales further and further. Yeah. I'm wondering, so you, you talked a little bit about some of the components related to marketing, the no like, and trust aspects of how you can use those with the way you think about designing your business model to create that um, win-win. I often talk to people about the fact, obviously, there's lots of ways you can do good inside your business, but I often talk to people about three easy ways to kind of think about it as entry points can be do you start with a customer focus of the doing good component is related to the the impact and results related to your customer? And so that sort of sits heavily around customer segment, your value proposition, and what that does with your revenue streams. You can think about it related to a team focus where I then drill into sort of the aspects related to key activities, key resources, and cost structure. Or you can think about it related to a production focus, which again has key activities, key uh, resources, cost structure, and key partners. I'm going over those things quickly because I know for you, you, like me, can visualise the business model canvas, right? But so it can often be helpful for people to think about entry points in, like, okay, it will change and grow over time, but where would I even start with this? If you are sitting with an established business leader who's saying, I actually do want to bring more of this in, into the business. I want there to be more meaning and purpose to what we're doing, but I don't want it to undermine the financial stability of the business. It's not about like let's swing from one extreme to the other. They're sitting in that both-end space, right, where they want to, to create the blended value. How do you, what would be some of the first questions you ask? How do you help them think about the entry point for the business model? Sure. Um- I was working with the CEO of a large sports and athletics company. And this sports and athletics company, they are looking at partnering or developing something in the impactful business social enterprise sort of space. And they said, Isaac, what do you actually mean by doing good with a business? What exactly does that look like? Are we doing that already? And, uh, I probably wasn't in a position to say yes or no. And I said, well, here's, I think, the three main ways a business can do something good. And I draw them up as like a Venn diagram, the same way that I draw up desirability, feasibility, and viability. And I see exactly the same thing play out. For me, when it comes to the desirability side of things, I think one of the best ways a business can do something really good is to sell something that's good for the world and to make it appealing, to make it desirable, to make it more appealing than you know, the what we already use today. For me, one of the best examples of this is something like Keep Cup. I've got no idea where Keep Cup's profits go and none of my business where Keep Cup's profits go. 
Their thing is, how do we make it desirable and appealing to bring your own cup to a cafe? 20 years ago, that would have been really, really strange behavior to bring your own mug or your own glass from Ikea or wherever to a cafe. They would have looked at you sideways. And Keep Cup's mission has been to work with cafe owners and to work with coffee drinkers and to say, hey, here's a way of doing it that you're going to feel really excited about doing. It's going to be more enjoyable for you than you're it's it's more appealing than a paper cup for you. It's way better for landfill to not use it, but also the cafe is going to know what to do if you if you hand that over. If we can get an extra one million people in Melbourne using Keep Cups over the next few years, the impact of that is phenomenal. Even if we don't know where the money from that business is going to go, I'm sure there's good things they can do with that money. But just the act of taking something that's good for the world and making it desirable, that's huge. Yes, and that piece we used, we used to always talk about related to even if all your business ever does is break even, it's an example that the world will be a better place. Like You have contributed positively, which, as you said, means we're not getting drawn into this conversation around well, what did you do with your profits. It's like we've actually taken way more responsibility and been held accountable for all of the decisions related to core business. So, yes, that's a beautiful example. Absolutely. The, the second one is around feasibility. And that is your business has the potential to do really cool things with your operations. And I would say uh, your payroll is one of the best ways of doing that. Your choice of supplier, your choice of methodology. There's a lot of things that the customer is not going to directly see, but the way in which you run your business can have a huge impact, um, often greater than the impact with the amount of money you'll have available as a donation. So if you're looking at you know established companies who have got you know, millions of dollars worth of spend, how you channel and, and funnel that money and the decisions you make with where your resources go, that's phenomenal. The employment that you can create, the training that you can create, what you can do for your team, what you can do. And not for, just employment, but conditions like the well-being of your staff, the culture, all of those things are so important. And it's a competitive advantage. This You see so many cases of organisation where that improves their staff retention, they become an employer of choice. That's... <laughs> Even if you, even if someone wants to be cynical, being an employer of choice is a very, very useful strategy, you know, strategic position to take in terms of you will get first pick of people, you will get them stick around for longer, you're going to get people put more of themselves into their work because you're a pleasant place to work, it's a good place to be. Those I will bet on those teams every time. And then the third one is around viability, and the fact to do with both the Profit, proceed, donation that you can make. I think the other really interesting one that we're starting to see more and more of these days is what do you want to do with the assets and the ownership of your business? So it's not just a matter of the, the profit that you can give away as a, as a donation. That's a lovely thing to do. But there's actually for, especially if you're working with, um, you know, community groups, if you're working with, um, you know, I, I, I saw this firsthand with, um, a lot of the agricultural cooperatives I worked with in the South Pacific and, and Southeast Asia, giving ownership and control of a business is so much more powerful than just giving somebody who doesn't have a position of power, who doesn't have a position of influence. Money is money is you know the fuel of choices and money is the lifeblood of a business. But to be able to give the ownership and control of that as well, that that's a massive tool for change over a much longer period of time as well. So I, I, I sort of said this to, the, to this particular um, athletic CEO. I said, 
you you tell me where do you where do you fit in this? And I think they've got a decent enough grounds for the desirability one in terms of their aim is to get people active. They want people to be um, their best selves. They want them to be participating. But I also think they look at that and they go, "Oh, we're not quite a, so we're not quite a social enterprise by any means." But it, they definitely do try and live up their values. Yeah, and I think uh, what's good about giving examples where we say there's a lot of different ways that you could begin this process or that you could focus on doing good inside the core business of, of your organisation is that I'm not a fan of any model that kind of says, here's what it needs to look like for everyone. Like it has to be uh, shared employer employee ownership across the board or it has to be about this. Because, again, one of the pieces that we need to work through is looking at the components of what is aligned with and, and makes sense for this particular business or these particular business owners. And that is going to be different in each case. I think there are some overarching principles, if you like. So say, for example, you may not want to go down the road of having uh, some employee ownership, but you should absolutely be creating an environment where when the business wins, your employees win. Now, that might look different in each business, but we don't want to be creating settings where we're just creating a bigger and bigger gap and resentment and power dynamics that are just fundamentally unhealthy, right? So there can be principles in an overarching sense of creating these win-wins and saying, I am responsible for the decisions I'm making. But as we said, each business owner can have different priorities, different values, and that's actually just a reflection of the world we live in. We don't all care about or prioritise the same things. And, you know, certainly for me, I'm not in any hurry to try to make everyone care about or believe what I believe, but I do want to be able to say, actually, in doing this work for a long time now, we have the benefit of seeing patterns and seeing what can create this competitive advantage and it can create a genuine win-win so that it doesn't have to be just if you have some profit left over or you feel like contributing this year, but it's actually creating that shift. One of the pieces, Isaac, that came to mind, you mentioned some of the pieces around um, the employee ownership. And in a podcast episode I did, I think, uh, two or three weeks ago, there was actually some research that London Business School did around those companies that featured in Fortune's like 100 Best Companies to Work. And their research showed that those companies generated 23 to 3.8% higher stock returns than their peers. Like there's all of these pieces that actually we have evidence now of these bits playing out in in the positive as long as someone I was talking to last week pointed out that with some of those best place to work, you also do need to look at how long do people tend to work there because if everyone says it's a great place to work but the average time they stay there is 18 months, well, maybe that's not a great example. So we always have to be discerning and looking at these things. Um, but I do think that if people have kind of questions or pushbacks to what could this look like. We are now decades and decades into many organisations going down this path and there is precedent and there is plenty of, of examples of businesses kind of creating these win-wins. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, do you have any favourite businesses, favourite business models and examples of, of groups 
that are doing this well in terms of integrating back into the business the contribution in some way? Everybody likes talking about innovation. Innovation is really, really hard. And one of the reasons why innovation is really hard is because people read case studies and stories from organizations where a lot of the people doing the work had a lot of creative control and they had skin in the game. And that's a really nice combination because there's a bit of optimism and there's a bit of fear. They work pretty well together in the right proportion. And the challenge is some of the groups who have a real aspiration to do this kind of work, but they go, we also want to become more sustainable. We also want to become more financially viable and impactful at the same time. They go, yes, let's also do the same thing. They miss those two criteria. They don't have creative control. The team doing the work doesn't have creative control and the team doing the work doesn't have skin in the game. All that means is if you don't have those two things, you are usually looking for your your boss's approval and your supervisor's criteria at all times. And that's going to make you move really, really slowly. It's going to make you second guess a lot of your work. And it's going to make you very hesitant to try things that might not work. When you look at business model innovation, all of it comes with risk. All of it comes from trying things that may or may not work, or it's going to be the second or third or fourth version or experiment that actually starts to take off with some customers. Um, if you have a team where people feel that they are trusted, where people have some sort of skin in the game, be it financial, be it in terms of the direction of the business, um, they have a degree of ownership, you're creating the condition where they're actually going to try things that your competitors won't do. That's, I think, a really nice way of looking at it, actually, because so people who are listening to this podcast are more in the category of they do have skin in the game, they do have the control of where it goes because it's their business, but they are important things to keep in mind if you are expecting these behaviours to filter down into your organisation, right, because it is that piece of how much of that are you willing to set the conditions for. And I've always talked about that aspect of incentivizing the right behaviour. How do you do that? And like you, I've done heaps of work in the space where it's either government or philanthropic funding and you say, hang on, the, the aspect of creating that environment, whether it is looking for innovation or whatever the catchy word is you're, you're using, if we don't actually have those conditions, if we make it too comfortable for people, if it's too easy and then we haven't done that thing of like, necessity is the mother of invention right so if there's not a little bit of a need to be scrappy and prototype and learn things but we can just jump straight to a multi-million dollar example of something before we've tested it out that is our responsibility as the leaders of these projects to actually say how do I intentionally design this whether it's a project an organization whatever it is how do I design it in a way that incentivizes the right behavior are there things that, so you come into an organisation that maybe has potentially already wasted a bunch of money, had some <laughs> project, projects that have not gone well because of all yeah. those things you just spoke about. Yeah. What would you be encouraging them to put in place to create those conditions, to incentivise the right behaviour, to give some of that both control and skin in the game, which is not always easy to do if someone is an employee and, you know, what does skin in the game mean? So can you talk to us a little bit about what would you actually want them to do? Sure thing. Um, for me, one of the most useful things in organisation in development is a an openness and a culture um, that embraces testing and small bets. 
that is one of the most useful things you can do is to not let people launch enormous campaigns and put together huge proposals for change, but instead get people really comfortable with saying, how do we go from gut feeling to small experiment to bigger experiment to we're pretty confident this is going to work and now we're willing to put more money into it. If you have a culture where people don't feel comfortable doing that, you're toast. There is there is no money you can spend then on the innovation and development side of things that's going to overcome that. Because if people feel like it is too embarrassing, it is too high stakes for me to present an idea that doesn't work, then they're not going to try things that could be amazing. I think that's the other side of that's the other side of risk is people look at it and say, this might not work. But a lot of the best ideas start when you're coming from this might work. If you've got a team who feels comfortable saying, I think this will work, here's how we can find out. What it does is it changes it from me pitching an idea to you and who's smarter out of us and who's got the better read of the market. It changes it to you and me versus the problem. And that environment is where your best ideas are going to take shape. One of the best practical tools I've seen for this is the test card that Strategizer uses. Bright green, ugly A4 piece of paper. You don't need anything special. It's four questions. And what it does is it helps you frame your ideas as a tester of the experiments. The four things are, number one, we believe that. So it's your chance to say, here's what we think is true. Or here's our suspicion. Second one is to verify that we will. And that's when you get to start the design. Okay, I'm going to approach 10 customers. I'm going to build a prototype. We're going to launch a crowdfunding campaign, whatever it's going to be. The third one is, here's what we're going to measure. And this is the one that a lot of people don't like, is if you're nervous, you don't want to measure things. But if you're very, very confident, you don't want to measure things either. But it's very helpful to go, okay, we think the most honest form of feedback from our, you know, for this trial is going to be how many people actually will, will put in a pre-order, will give us their credit card number, will give us a second meeting or whatever it's going to be. And then the, fo- uh, the final one is we are right this. And so we are right if is really helpful because you go, okay, if we can get three out of the 10 groups we're going to approach to sign this MOU or whatever it's going to be, if we can get three MOUs signed within the next 60 days, that's enough. That, that for us is validation. That for us is evidence. And so from a management perspective, if you're able to have a culture that says people can come to you with these experiments and say, show me how, how can I make this experiment easier? That way it's you and them versus the experiment rather than people trying to pitch themselves as who's the smartest, who's got the most authority. No one's guaranteeing that these things are going to work, but you're transparent about saying, here's how we'll find out if this opportunity has real potential. And while they're not guaranteeing it's going to work, they also are having to be clear enough and set things that they can be held accountable to where you can then, what what you're avoiding is something that was so blurry that then they come back to you and they're like, Oh, yeah, but it was successful. And you're like, well, but hang on. You said you had to do these things. You had to do this and we had to have this outcome. None of that's happened. What do you mean it's successful? So it's that piece. I think you're right. We can, and this is that human piece, isn't it, which comes into all of this work. It is easier to swing between extremes. It's easier to be either really rigid or like so loose and there's no structure to it at all or be all about the money or all about the social good, right? So we swing between these things. And I think what is helpful about things like the business model canvas as a tool or like the testing piece you've just described with these four categories is there's still heaps of room in a good tool 
for you to make it bespoke to you, for you to fit within what is important to you. So it's not rigid in that sense, but it gives that framework and that confidence around, am I asking the right questions? Am I drilling to enough clarity without being paralysed by not having to have every fine detail sorted? So that testing piece is actually really important, I think. I think it's really helpful to hold people account to the lead measures rather than the lagging results. So I, I would, for me, I feel very, very nervous at being held accountable for it must be this popular. It must have this many pre-sales by this particular time. I think at the business model canvas stage, the thing you would hold someone accountable is the attempt, the, the attempt of like how many customers did you talk to? How many iterations did you start to think about? How many, you know, how many prototypes did you, did you launch and, and start to measure? And you just can't predict it, but you can be responsible for actually making the attempts and putting in, putting in the effort and the work. Yeah. And it, it makes me think of, I don't know if you remember back in the day, but, you know, we would often have these conversations. I remember particularly one with you, me and another colleague where things kept getting framed as, Oh, but Bessie, this is a loss leader. And I'm like, hang on. But <laughs> I, Firstly, it feels like everything's being framed as a loss leader and I'm not winning anything. But secondly, there was no none of those proof points you just talked about of actually in that giving, say, in that instance, me as the CEO of the organisation confidence of I don't even know how to judge whether this project you're suggesting is a winner or not when I'm just being told to believe that, like, oh, we'll figure all of that out later, like it. We have to do this bit first. That that can be really tricky if you're the business owner or the CEO kind of saying, I don't even know how to judge your idea. I don't know how we know if we've won. Like, yeah, so I, I like that. Um, I like that piece. That's good. I remember that. I actually, without saying who the people Yeah, you, you know what I'm doing. I know exactly. That was, that was July 2014. And I think what was... What was really interesting is we we had tried something new and we were gonna we were gonna do it a few times and the person who was driving that that new thing we were trying couldn't really explain the recipe that they were trying to follow. They hadn't actually explained. Here's my my thought process. Uh, what's what's sort of funny and uh, unfortunate about that is I actually think that there was a really good idea there. I actually think there was actually it was very sensible. But if people can't articulate their sensible thought process, they, they're going to be misconstrued and it's going to sound like there's not a thought process there at all. Um, in, in this particular case, one of the things that we had been looking at at TDI was what would be, uh, how do we build a community of practice that people would love to be a part of? And I think there is a really neat way you can start to describe, well, here's what we can put together, here's how we'll know. If you just start by running things and buying beer and pizza for lots of people and at the end of it, as you're doing the cleanup, you go, did this work? Is this, was this popular enough that we do another one? Can we start charging for it now? How, you know, what's the right way of doing this? It's really, really, really hard to form that measurement after the fact. Yeah. What well, I also like because you've kind of fallen in love with it a bit. So you're going to justify, ah, oh, look. A little bit longer. We just need a little bit longer. It's hard to let go of because, you know, we often, and again, when we think about tools like the business model canvas, when we talk about aspects of learning to set up that culture or environment where you can test, pilot, prototype, have that appetite for risk, but done in a sensible way. 
you actually, you need some of those bits to be in place and to have the tools to use up front so that you can hold, and I still always quote Brad, which you're used to after all these years, but, you know, you can hold what Brad talks about um, as that aspect of, okay, this hasn't earned permanence. So you can <laughs> have some of yes. you can have some <laughs> of those pieces where you say, hasn't earned permanence, like I'm drawing the Frank Gehry sketch here, I'm not in love with it yet, but I'm actually able to build up some confidence even at the level of a test of what this needs to look like for us to make the next investment of time or money or whatever it is. And so I think that when business owners are starting to engage with something like the business model canvas, what it is helpful for is that interim step of like the conceptualization phase, the ability to get a level of confidence without getting to the point of so much detail that you get lost in it and it's an 80-page document and you've lost all relational connections and you don't really even know when something changes on page 15, how does it affect page 85, right, which is how we used to always talk about that difference between a business model and a business plan. So the are there any other kind of components in all the years you've been using the Canvas where some of that plays out for you and you think about where this is so helpful at the level of being a tool to see quickly on one page what might catch you out or where an opportunity might be? So one of the things that I found hardest when the Difference Incubator first started as a new business from absolute day day zero and day one was you have months and months worth of plans and conversations and ideas about what the business is going to be and what the main projects are going to be. And I remember the thing that I was most struck by was that everything that I was working on is one 30-second conversation away from being made completely outdated, completely redundant, and, and taken in a different, new, and exciting direction. That is what the canvas gives you. It's not that the one page itself is miraculous or magical or transformative or anything like that. What it allows you to do is it allows you to very quickly take your mental eraser and go, okay, what if we had a different partner? What if we ran it in a different location? What if we targeted a different type of customer? What if there was a different way of earning some revenue from it? And it's a really neat way of keeping most of the detail in your head without without keeping it all as being permanent. It's very hard to do that with a business plan. If you've got that 80-page business plan, like you're saying, and all of a sudden someone says, hey, would you be willing to partner with us to run what you're doing in a new location or in a slightly new industry or something like that? The canvas gives you a way of going, what changes? And I think the what changes comes in those three big words, desirability, feasibility, and viability. So you go, okay. Am I keeping the same sort of customer but changing how the back end of the business works and the feasibility side? Are we changing how money moves in and out? Are we making smaller or bigger bets and smaller or larger commitments? Does it change who we're going to be partnering with? Does it change who our suppliers and manufacturers are going to be? And what, what I tend to see is the changes to your business model. It's a bit like double entry accounting. If something changes on one part of the model, something's going to change somewhere else too. So if you go, well, how do we What happens if we set up shop in Malaysia? What happens if we set up shop in wherever it's going to be? You go, okay, if we see that there's a customer over there, what's the corresponding team that we would need to have? Do we need to employ them? Are we going to, you know, we're going to recruit them ourselves? We're going to partner with someone else who's already got that expertise. Generally, when one thing changes, 
some other parts of the model are going to need to change too. Yeah, and it does, you're right, it gives you the confidence then to know you will spot that much quicker at the level of a business model canvas than you will at the level of a detailed plan. Yeah, I, I always get nervous whenever I see people um, laminate their canvases or, or they stick them up on the wall and they don't touch them again. And Brad's thing of, you know, that hasn't been, I, I We declared that once in Port Moresby in an office somewhere where we saw the work that we had done 12 months earlier was still up there and it was still there today. And you go, it's it's innovation theatre. Like it will be, be lovely if um, businesses were that predictable that mm-hmm. what you were doing 12 months ago is the way that, um, your industry and that reality works today, but realistically, they you know they've got a new team, they've got new customers, they've got new opportunities, they've got new partners, they've got new assets. Um, the market landscape has changed. What used to be too cheap might not feel too cheap. Um, the way they spend money might not be the best way to spend money. Um, yeah. It's it's hard. People, people cling to permanence because it's nice to think to ourselves that the work we've already done is now going to last us for a long time. Realistically, that just isn't true. I, I think it is helpful to start to go, okay, the model we have today, this has got an expiration date of about three months and then life, and you know, life will have changed. And so we're going to update that canvas to match what we see in the real world. Yeah. Well, and you've got little kids now, so you would know this example well. I remember when my kids were little, whenever I got cocky and thought like, look at us with our great routine and such great parents. <laughs> and then as soon as you were in that place where you thought it was all humming nicely, someone would go through a growth spurt or not sleep at night or do, you know, like it's this piece of a business is the same in that there's different chapters, something that worked once, suddenly there's a shift externally or internally, which means now what did work didn't, uh, sorry, doesn't anymore. And that to me comes back to, again, Maybe as we, you know, start to pull this conversation to a close, it's the aspect of a tool like the business model canvas. In any of these things, we want to always have an ING on the end, right? So we want to learn how to do business modeling, not to do a business model, laminate it, put it on the wall and think we're done, right? We need to be able to do business planning not have a business plan that sits in the drawer and we assume is forever true. So these pieces are finding entry points, finding frameworks or tools, learning how to use them so that it's one of the the tools or those heuristics, as Brad would say, that that you can tap into not once but in an ongoing way where you now have these questions like the questions you gave us, Isaac, around strategizers pieces for testing that we now just have these tools to call on when we say, I'm sitting in a meeting, I'm hearing people talk about ways customers are responding to us now, which I've never heard before. That tells us something has changed. Right, let's let's look at what is it on our business model. So I think part of this aspect around the conversation today and a tool like the business model canvas is simply looking at it as a tool that you really do need to be able to use if you're, you're wanting to be able to cope with the speed of change that all of us are now operating with as businesses, that like nothing is staying stable or the same for very long. And even if it worked well in the last quarter, it's probably not going to work now and you need to have a way to adapt but do it in that approach that you spoke about, Isaac, of not having to go from zero to 100 in one hit and risk everything with a shift that you haven't tested out. So it's a it's a way to model that. 
One of the other pieces I would love to get your thoughts on is that when I think about the opportunity that a business leader has to start to bring good back inside the business and start to see that as a competitive edge, it's that the sooner people do that, the more chance they have to take a staged approach and to not have to go from zero to 100. But the longer people take to come on board with this, the more they're going to be in positions where there are just demanding regulations or compliance or customer demands that they have to now fit within and they won't have as much time to test and model and prototype calmly. What are your thoughts and what are you seeing about that speed of change and the need to actually adopt this different way of thinking about business and its role? It's really hard to do it in a hurry. It's really hard to rapidly pivot or rapidly change what you're doing. It's easier to do the thinking now when there's not quite the same time pressure. Um, One of the most useful things I think a business owner can do around this is to take a real asset lens and look at what do we have? Like, what does our business have? What are we good at? And how do we use that to do as much good as we possibly can? So it's not a question of like, do I want to keep the money for ourselves versus something nice over the other side but it's about going what what else could this be and that what else could this be is not a quick conversation but it's a conversation that you want to start to have now so that when there is market pressure when there's opportunity you've already put the thinking into well i've got a sense of it could be a b and c let's test these out let's see which one of these are going to survive running some experiments or talking to our team and seeing which ones resonate you don't have to have perfect ideas but it's it's really helpful to start having a higher quality of question about your work now yes very true and i think there's also that aspect of the next step to what you're talking about there is that by thinking about these things up front and playing with some of the scenarios or what it could look like or what how that might play out it also positions you for the fact that we're now operating in a space where It's not actually just that we have to have an answer when people start asking these questions. We have to be able to back it up and prove what we're doing (laughs) in the business. Like it's not good intentions are not good enough. And we're as customer demands, for example, or even employees, I've talked to a lot of business owners recently who are saying, when I'm now interviewing someone, I'm suddenly realizing that they're interviewing me just as much as I'm interviewing them. Like this is not a, do I want to hire them? It's do they actually want to work here? And not only do we have to have thought about these things, when people are asking a question of us about, well, how do you make these kinds of decisions or what do you do if there's a trade-off that needs to be made, what comes first? We have to have thought about those things. We have to have an answer, which is part of this piece we're talking about of like, okay, what are the tools that help you run scenarios and think about that? But it also has to be deeper than that. Just like we always say when we're teaching someone how to use the business model canvas, if your only information is what's on that post-it note, when I drill in, if you've got no substance <laughs> behind that, like we're in trouble. But you do need to have boiled it down to its essence on that business model canvas. I, I don't want you to have paragraphs and paragraphs there. But there has to be substance behind it. The same goes for this thinking and starting to bring good back inside your business is you need to have boiled it down to the clarity to give a succinct answer. But behind that, has to be the evidence to back that up. There has to be the actual practices in your organisation. It's not enough to just claim something. And again, all of that takes time. 
you know, your example you gave of the organisation you met with last week. Often businesses are already doing a whole bunch of really great stuff in a whole range of areas, whether it's with their employees or with other programs or ways that they're, um, you know, producing a product. But they're not actually, it's not intentional and conscious yet. There's kind of ad hoc decisions being made. It takes time even just to do that kind of um, bit of an the review of all of those behaviours and pull it together. So that, again, is another reason to just start to, to think about this and, and use something like the Business Model Canvas to be an entry point to doing this. Are there any pieces, Isaac, we've kind of jumped here, there and everywhere, um, which is kind of how my brain works, but <laughs> you know that well. Um, are there any pieces that you think are important for us to kind of touch on or drill into a little bit just to make sure that there's a, a base level understanding around the canvas itself? The most useful thing you can do when approaching the business model canvas is the, the sentence you want to say is, I don't know, but I will find out. And what it's going to do is it's going to prompt you with nine broad questions. And those questions, you know, for some things like customer segments, it's going to ask, who exactly is shopping with you? And you're going to start to look at things like, where do they come from? Where are they walking around today? What's their first impression going to be? And for a lot of you listening to this, the, the realistic answer is, I actually have no idea. Or it might be that you go, I'm going to look at where my last five major customers came from. And you're going to start to go, oh, actually, it is not where I thought it was going to be. I'm not thrilled with how they found me. I'm glad they found me. Um, and it will make you go, well, I actually need to find out more about how do I get in front of the next 50 large customers at the same time. Same goes with things like key resources and key activities. They're going to, those feasibility types of boxes, they're going to ask you, what is most essential in your work? If you were going to go on leave for six weeks, what, what are the most important things that your team are going to have to do to make sure that the business still runs really smoothly and that they can, they can do what you would do in those situations? And again, for a lot of people, they're going to go, I have no idea what's going to happen there, but I will find out. And it means you don't have to bluff. Please don't bluff with your business model canvas and don't write that short post-it note version like you were saying if there's not that depth behind it. One of the most helpful things that canvas is doing for you is it's making you go, what would I do? If I could only have a five-minute conversation with my team each day while I'm somewhere else in the world, what is what is the most important things we're going to have to talk about? And it's the same with viability. If people say, okay, for each one of these $2,000 services that you're selling, where does the $2,000 actually go? How much of that goes to cost of goods versus your overheads versus what you get to retain uh, each time you have one of those sales? For a lot of people, there's a stunned silence. And I don't know, but I will find out. And it's going to make you look at your unit economics and start to look at, okay, where does the money go? And you're probably in for a surprise. It could be a good surprise. It could be a, a rude surprise. But you want to have these moments really, really early to start to get a sense of like, these are valid questions that it's asking my business. If I don't know, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility to start to think through what might those answers look like for us. Yeah, I love that because it also brings us all the way back to that culture we're trying to set up of it's okay to not know, it's okay to ask questions and fail, etc. that piece will actually set you up way better for making progress quickly and being more impactful if you get comfortable with that aspect of saying, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And the other piece that gives a, a level of comfort 
to that uncomfortable process is that by having some of these frameworks, having the questions to ask, the way to even identify where those gaps are in your knowledge means it's not all a blank sheet of paper and you're then nervously going, did I even ask the right questions? There is a lot of thinking and thousands and thousands of businesses that have been part of refining this tool, which can give you that that confidence as you have the sometimes difficult realisations around, oh, there's actually a lot of gaps in here that I don't know, or things that were not necessarily intentional that you now go, am I happy with what I've now discovered or do I need to change this moving forward? Are there any things, Isaac, that you want to leave us with when you think about, let's go back to that overarching core message of you can do good make and make money and, in fact, doing good is the competitive edge your business has been missing? Are there is there sort of some final words or anything you want to say that you wish business owners and business leaders were more conscious of on this journey? My my general advice for these sorts of things is trade-offs are the essence of strategy. And the more comfortable you get with what those trade-offs are going to look like, uh, and the more time that you can spend thinking about those now, the happier you're going to be. You can't be all things to all people. It's just not possible. You can't be the most of everything and there's going to be times where you decide well here's the line in the sand here's what we're going to be and here's where we're going to say actually we can't serve all of the market we can't be all of these really noble things we're not going to have all parts of our business being as generous and altruistic as possible but here's the trade-off we're going to make we're going to be for some people right now and we'd like to use that to develop it build our assets build our capability there's more things we can do in the future the more comfortable you get with those trade-offs, the more comfortable you're going to be with a lot of the change and uncertainty that's going to come to your business. It will change. That is that is the guarantee. It's what Bessie's tattoo on her wrist is going to tell you as well. But it's going to like this. This too shall pass. And the more comfortable you are with understanding what's most important to you, what trade-offs you are willing to make, which ones you aren't willing to make. There we go. That's going to set you up really well for a very uncertain future. I love it. Thank you. That is a beautiful way to to wrap it up today. Isaac, we will put some things in the show notes, but what is the best way if someone wants to learn a bit more about the way you think and the work you're doing or reach out to you, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Oh, sure thing. Um, I have a website. I don't sell anything on it. It is just all of the all of the content that comes up in a lot of my workshops is there in long form, sometimes a little bit all over the shop. Um, I have a contact form there as well. Um, and the website is oh sorry the website is <laughs> isaacjeffries.com this is my name isaacjeffries.com so we will put it in the show notes but um, I really encourage you Isaac is the king of consistency with these things I remember many years ago when you began your website and you were like I think it was you were going to write 50 or 100 you had this kind of set target and I was thinking oh good lord that's a lot and you actually did it you 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 write and you put it out there so Three cheers for you, but can it is I, a great. Can I quickly, can I quickly tell that story. Yeah, Just tell the story. Th- th- this is this is one of the things that I feel most strongly about. Mm. These sorts of things. I started writing because um, <laughs> so this is sort of Bessie's fault. Um, Bessie had asked me to write some blogs from a project that we'd done, and I was like, I'm not a good writer. I don't know, and the the work wasn't really like the articles I wrote weren't very good. And then I went. Well, what's the real problem here? And I went, the real problem is I don't practice. 
And then it dawned on me one day, I went, you know what? If I wrote a hundred articles in secret, by the time I got to the 101st one, it probably wouldn't be an embarrassment. It's not going to be amazing, but it's not going to be an embarrassment. And so the mission I set myself for that year was I'm going to write a hundred articles and not tell anyone about it until the 101st one has happened. And that is, um, it's, it doesn't make me an amazing writer, but it, it is a really good example of what we were talking about before with being responsible for the lead measure. The lead measure was how many articles did I write this week? And if the answer is not two, I'm going to fall behind. The target was not to write two beautiful or brilliant articles. It was just to do something. And it's my best content creation advice that I give to anybody who will listen is start in secret. <laughs> Be responsible for putting in effort and then don't tell anyone about it until you're happy with it. Yeah, and it is that piece. I mean, I know even I've been saying this to people. I think I'm up to like episode 25 or something of the podcast and it's the same piece. I can't remember who it was, but someone had that same aspect. Actually, it might have been Seth Godin or someone, but it was around he won't go on someone's podcast unless they've done at least 100 episodes because it takes 100 episodes. Like it is that piece that you <laughs> just you have to get good at it. And I, with the podcast, we don't have the benefit you had. Of, you can't actually do it in secret. Well, you could if you didn't publish them. But um I totally have said to everyone I've talked to, oh, I'm just figuring this out. Like it is totally an experiment and I know that it's going to take me at least 100 if not more episodes to get good at this, but I'm willing to look like an idiot and do some bits that aren't great in the meantime to actually hone that skill. And so I agree with you. It, it is that consistency and willingness to be back in the position of being a novice and learn something if it is important and if it's a skill you need to have, then go for it. But, yes, so that was a long way of us telling you all to go to Isaac Jeffries. <laughs> Come and, and see my rough drafts. That, that's no, but, <laughs> but you've also done that well because now when you do, I always crack up when I type in something into Google around business modelling and you come up always at the top. Like you, you rank, my friend. So three cheers for you and your consistency. <laughs> but. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's my other secret to writing popular content. Write about things other people find boring, and apparently that puts you at number one on Google. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. <laughs> but thank you so much, Isaac. Really appreciate it. And uh, both Isaac and I, who have been using the Canvas for a long time, would absolutely recommend that it is a wonderful tool for all business owners to get their head around. So obviously head over to Strategizer as well and and learn that, that amazing uh, tool. Okay. Thank you so much, Isaac. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to both success and integrity with Bessie Graham. If you found what I shared today valuable or you think that it would be good for a fellow business leader to listen to, then please share the episode with someone you know. Another way to help the podcast is to provide a rating and written review on your podcast app of choice. The written review is important because it helps others learn more about what we're trying to achieve. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me at any time on LinkedIn, YouTube or Instagram just by searching Bessie Graham or you can go to BessieGraham.com. I'm Bessie Graham and remember... You don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life.